Welcome to SelfDiscoveryWisdom.com, formerly known as SelfDiscovery Media. On these podcasts, you're going to hear people who speak from the heart. They've taken the journey in life. Many things have happened to them, but they've changed it to happening for them. And in their strength, their courage, they've discovered their abilities and their wisdom, and they are now sharing it here with you. Do enjoy each show. We bring it to you with love and knowing that it's going to help you on your journey of life. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of An Author's Kiss right here at selfdiscoverywisdom.com. I'm your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Carol Michelson. We're going to be talking about her many books, but her new book, which was called Maynard's God. It's got a beautiful cover on it, really great. And I believe this is her fifth book for fiction. Uh, so we're going to touch on the other books today as well. But what about this book? Well, it has received five stars, and it's highly recommended and a, a one on award of excellence from the historical film company chosen by the independent book review as one of the best books of 2022. Uh, it's her fourth novel and the main ad's God is the story of a war that's been fought for thousands of years. The war between ancient arts of music, poetry and love and equally the ancient forces of artistic enemy, uh, oppression, law, authoritarian, religion and uh, Boston 1992 an alienated FBI agent, Pete Moreau, discovers a murder and becomes obsessed with Jade McKellen, a mysterious mafia-backed rock musician. Tough guy Amaro has never been in love before, but Jade is almost magical, creating a private imaginary world from his songs and stories that rapidly become the only thing Marrow values in his life, otherwise an uh, empty life. Unfortunately, Marrow is investigating the mafia family that is investigating in Jade's musical career. Uh, being open about their relationship can get them both killed. Well, this sounds rather like a wonderful thriller to read. And, you know, we, we like to have books that take us elsewhere, but, but we also like to have books that kind of reflect where we are or recent past or give us food for thought, something that can we put down and go, hmm, I relate or this happened to me or this is happening right now or I didn't know that happened. So when you write a fictional story, but it brings in, you know, the past and uh, things that we remember from the past. It always makes it even more juicy. So welcome to the show, Karen. Well, thank you for having me, Sarah. It's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. So this is your fourth novel, but you've written five books. Correct, correct. And what was the other book about? Uh, my first book was actually a work of scholarship. It was a study of Victorian literature, Victorian canon making. It was also my PhD dissertation, but it was later published by an academic press. And I was looking at how um, late Victorian fantasy got excluded from the literary canon, mostly for political and church reasons. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that seed, there was a time in the 1870s, 1880s, maybe I'm getting a bit technical here, where genre fiction split off one way and so-called literary fiction, realism, split another way. And I was looking at the historical reasons for why that happened. So that's what that book is about. And it was later that I started actually writing literary fantasy with my first book. So I think I think the scholarship became in some ways a seed to my fiction. Yeah, yes. And, you know, just in what I've just read in that bit there, you know, political, religion. 
uh, you know, politics and religion are always the reason why we're screwed up, you know, because they just get, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm calling it. That's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, the good intentions of what they both are, uh, it, it's always manipulated to what somebody wants it to be. And, you know, hence taking that Victorian era and saying, no, 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 we, we can't put that out. It's politically incorrect. Um, you know, and just not allowing the spirit of a person to explore other worlds and saying it's sinful or it's going to make the masses be uncontrollable. And really, when you look at what stops us from expanding our thoughts, expanding our wonderment is always some form of institution that says, no, we want you to keep you here in a nice, neat little box because that's where we can control you. Well, that's a theme that comes out in the main. It's God. And it's very interesting that you're sort of drawing that connection because now if you think about it in the late 19th century, there's also a war on creativity. There was mm -hmm. also or on, you know, there's a certain way that's proper to have novels to teach to the young men we're sending to empire kind of thing. And everything else is, you know, children's lit or women rated or whatever, and they split it up that way. And it, it happened over a period of, of a decade or so. Um, the English major, as we know it today as a major, was formulated in the 1870s by people like Matthew Gold and the, the idea that you're saying about religion and putting things in a box, well, the main it's God deals with that. It deals with the difference between authoritarian religion and not just putting art in a box, but your life telling you exactly what path you must follow as opposed to a life of the spirit, which is what Jade, the, the one character you mentioned, brings to Pete. And it contrasts the two of them. Yeah. Characters that are or claim to be semi-mythic, maybe in some sense thousands of years old, that have been fighting this battle on a spiritual level, too. Mm. So the book does two things. As you say, it, it brings you back to the 1990s, recent time. Let's look back on it, see what it's like. But I also hope it brings people into a different perspective in a different kind of world, in a place where myth and magic and reality kind of meet inform something new and i think a lot of people are going to identify with pete the narrator because he's kind of caught in the middle of this hmm. he's he's stuck in reality he's an fbi agent his job has shown him such horrible things he's just absolutely alienated from humanity his only escape is staying home and, and reading the classics and then he encounters this musician that creates fantasy fictional worlds for him that opens him up into a possibility and a way of, of being, a way of self-actualization that becomes in conflict with everything he knows. And I think so many of us can identify with that. Um, well, you're talking he, about the times right now. Yes. You really are. You're reflecting on the times right now. But having written it like 30 years ago, people can, can read it. And when they start reading it, feel it was then. And then as they read it, my God, no, it reflects where I am now. Well, that's interesting observation because Pete is somebody in the 90s who would be a little bit of an anomaly in the fact that when you meet him, he's he's likable and he's funny and he's satirical. I mean, some of his insights into social issues might make some people chuckle, but he's really extremely isolated but from everyone. 
And yet, if you drew him out of 92 and you put him today, he'd be like everyone. I mean, we're mm. all talking in screens. We don't see each other in person very often, many of us. We're all separate, especially post-COVID. So he may be kind of the character mm. you identify with as a 2023 reader going back to 93. Yes. He's kind of the end. The other part of that that's interesting is I did write an early version of Maynard back in the 90s. So mm. I really hope the roots are there and that the authenticity is there. I um, mean, what's scary to me is that we're looking at the 19, that's 30 years ago. You know, that was, I you know, my kids were growing up in that time period in the 90s and you think of it and then you go, oh my God. <laughs> it's a yeah, blink, right? Yeah, exactly. But at the same time is how much further have we grown technically? leaps and bounds as you know you put in your book that this is before internet before screens you know computers were the size of rooms right and uh, um, we had phones we didn't even have well cell phones were coming into place but there were these big huge big things and then the flippers yeah. and batteries ran out quickly and you had to look for charges and that part hasn't changed <laughs> batteries VCR, always... tapes. VCR tapes yes uh, and, just and cassette tapes sometimes. <laughs> yeah. and you know you look back at that and it's like you know people today that live entirely through their phones and through their screens it's um, and even reading a book on screen is that if this is kind of the dark ages for them and what you're referring to but it wasn't that long ago and it no. just shows how technology can switch you know switch people's thinking or observation in a totally different way and uh, that they actually are losing connection with conversation with each other with inquiry i mean this is wonderful tool absolutely fan fantastic just like the car is if you don't drive the car well or you don't drive it anywhere, you know, there's going to be consequences. So it's the same with anything. I think it's a, it's I like people to have put down a book and have a reflection on where they're at right now. You know, the characters doing this or the characters being there or this is, you know, what the the ending is. And then to stop and reflect it back onto their own life and let it be a, a pause where they can kind of step in and look. What character did I really relate to? Why did I relate so well to them? You know, would I like to have been Pete and look at Jade in that way? I never look at anybody that way. All of those kind of questions that I think when a reader reads, I, you know, if you put down a book and you've immediately forgotten it, it ain't a good book. But if you've got a book that keeps the story, keeps on going in some way in your life, then you know that book is really related. And it just keeps that wonderment alive and I think helps people look at life in a different way. Well, I think you put it really, really beautifully because a lot of it was my intent. And in terms of the way Pete looks at Jade, not to give too much away in the book, but Jade is so, sort of apparently might be uh, half divine son of the Greek god Dionysus, potentially. Yeah. I mean, there's this old trope in rock music and rock culture, you know, the, the the rock star is the god. He's not exactly a rock star, but he aspires to be, and he, he's a brilliant musician. And the people around him, Pete stumbles into this corner of reality that bends into myth. So part of the question this book asks is, is what is it like to encounter divinity? Is divinity us? Are we all part God? Yes. Is, does Jade bring that out in Pete so he sees himself differently? And the story arc is very much the arc of, of people that are familiar with 
Hellenic mythology know Dionysus is a sacrificial god. They know that he's the god that dies and comes back very often like Adonis. And Jade, in a lot of his attitudes and relationships with other people, mirrors that. Mm-hmm. And, this is, and for somebody like Pete, who hates humanity, what happens if you fall in love with somebody who may mirror something else? Yeah. And it's and it and it it's part of that too. And and I really think and this is something that comes up maybe maybe I've seen something like this come up on your podcast, which I've been watching, Sarah. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but I think there is very much a what I want to say, a war between creativity and what I in the book call entropy. Mm-hmm. And entropy is what wants to pull all of us down. And and mm-hmm. I should start by saying creativity is something we all have. I mean, I think yes. there's a tendency for some people to think creativity should only be or is only associated with the traditional arts, you know, music, writing, acting, whatever. We're all creative. Every single and one of us. One, some one, way or all other. Of us. Yeah. It's part of the human condition. It's part of who we are. And one of the weapons entropy uses is to separate us from that mm-hmm. and make us think that we're not. Yeah. And, and one of those weapons is to make people think they're not creative if they don't do a traditional art. And it's just wrong. Right. I mean, I mean, we all are. And this tension that goes on through the novel between the world of fantasy where you can actuate yourself and find out, not like be whoever you want to be, but find out who you are and be that freely and share that with others is very much in a battle with Pete's job in the government, government corruption, um, the, like I said, the narrow path he has to go in other ways. Well, he's and, lived a very restrictive life. And he's this is the, yeah, he's the, this is the narrow road, right, that yeah. you're meant to be on. There's good and there's bad, and these are the signs of each, and that's the road he's walked on, which clearly, you know, had a dead end for him. And he knew that in his heart that there was something more. That and he how, did, how does he find road. it? Mm-hmm. He struggles with this road before he meets Jade. I mean, very early in the novel, he talks about this one encounter he has with a young woman um, who's run away from abusive parents. And he's gone out of state and he's knows where she is. And I'm not giving spoilers away because this happens right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he makes a decision. I'm going to break all the rules and I'm not going to tell everybody where she is because where she is is safe. Yeah, And she, she's working for this wonderful immigrant couple that sort of adopted her. And she's smiling for the first time in her life. And then one of his colleagues breaks into Pete's files, finds her, brings uh, her back and says, hey, I'm the hero. I found the runaway. And within weeks, her abusive parents kill her. And Pete is devastated. You know, what was, what was yeah. right and what is wrong. Right. By law, Pete did what was wrong. By ethics and morality, yes, the law did what was wrong, and he did what was right, and so he's already, you know. Yeah. But this is where I think it, you know the the analogy to life too is that there's an also a lot of laws that have been put in place, and we've got to remember the guidelines. It's like, it's the law, so therefore it is. No, there are times when that law does not apply. You haven't got a channel that applies to that. So that that law in its black and whiteness is not addressing the shading or the other colors. It's only only addressing black and white. And life isn't black and white. And I think where we're at as a human race right now, we're very much in that gray looking for color. You know, we, exactly. we, we know that there is no, you know, this is the way we do it, folks. So you've got to do it this way. There is your way. 
And that means that as we point fingers, which I'm sure you've seen me do if you watch my shows, as we point fingers at all the establishments out there, there are three pointing back at us saying we're equally the problem if we're abstaining from the solution. We all have to take responsibility and onus for our own choices, who we are and what we are contributing. And that is the discovery of our instrument, our creative gift. And whether mm. it is you're an accountant or you're a violinist, it, that isn't the point, that, that each one of us is being given a gift. And then when we step into it, it becomes part of the, the equation that's part of the solution. And I think having, you know, I'm glad you put that in the book because look at me, I'm the hero, I brought it back, now she's dead. Was that morally right? Did you question the child? Did you question the parents? Did you go deeper into the situation of why she ran away? No, black, white, she's run away, got to bring her home, right? And this is where we're at, I think, in society. We're not asking the deeper questions. We're not looking at, why people do what they do, why they feel what they feel. And I think this is why we see so much more depression and anxiety today, because nobody is listening. It's just going to the letter of the law or religion, politics or anything else. And this is why I think we're seeing such an uprising with people right now. A lot of them have no idea why they're angry. They're just angry. Also, many of us are forced to live lives that are as mechanistic as a computer algorithm. Right, I mean, exactly. In, in <laughs> it doesn't laws, work, folks. In the law, it's the same way. Yes, but not zero and ones. <laughs> and this is why I think so many people would identify with Pete in the main, it's God. Mm -hmm. Because like you said, and I agree, a lot of people are angry, don't even know why, but they know that there's sort of this promise out there with all this technology and all this stuff. And then there's the reality of the way we're all kind of shunted into live. Yes. And one of the things that I, I blogged about a couple of years ago, just before COVID kicked in is I said, I think this is going to be corporate America's worst nightmare. People are going to stay home. They're going to look at the stars. Mm. They're going to make eggs and mint for breakfast. They're, they're going to slow down. They're going to appreciate what's around them. They're going, to think. they're going to think and feel. And they're going to think. And yes. guess what happened? Yeah. So many people don't want to return to the work physically. They want right. to work from home. They, they, they want to see the sunlight come through the window yeah. at a certain time of day. They, they want to appreciate yeah. what's around them. So yeah, we're kind of getting separated from our creative selves, our spirit selves. And that tells me at the moment, entropy is winning. Yeah. It's another character in there. His name is Hugh. Mm. And Hugh represents entropy. He is ancient and ancient and slow and oozes through the novel and wants to destroy anything that that allows you to be a complete person. It's right, yes. Um, about five and a half years ago, the universe gave me a saying, which is the universe is going to shake us up, to wake us up, for us to step up and change it up and grow up, double and tarned, grow up vibrationally, but grow up as a human race, right? We, we, we put all our misery on the have-nots instead of realizing the beautiful gifts of what we have and what we can have. Mm. And, and those have-nots are based on what society has told us we need to have to be happy. And when people have had that time to reflect and pause and go in and ask their inner selves what they want to really connect with source, whatever that source energy is, but connect, then they realize I've been living an outside life of by society's dictation and I'm not happy. I'm going to go in and listen to my heart, soul and spirit 
and let that guide my mind. And we're seeing more and more and more of that. That's why that separation is there. But that's why there's so much chaos there too. Absolutely. It's like so much of, so many of us are forced to live a kind of a living death in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not, not only is it go, go to, go to work, come home, do whatever it, it's working the exact way you are hit to work. We have to think in terms of a computer algorithm all the time. You mm-hmm. notice that 30 years ago, more people were thinking in terms of life and, and life's power and who they were and now we have to kind of truncate and chop up our lives to fit whatever some computer programmer somewhere has put into you know our our work environment or whatever right and and you know a a computer program and brilliant because they've given us so many wonderful things but they're dealing their gift is to be to create the algorithm now that algorithm does belong in certain aspects of our life but it's not the conductor of all of our life. It's back to the argument now with AI. AI used in certain areas can be extremely beneficial and take up the, the load where some things are missing. Um, it's a game back with the car. You know, the car is a wonderful instrument to get you from A to B, and it allows you to explore or go and reach out further. Uh, but at the same time, driven wrong, or driven badly or driven carelessly, it can be a, a weapon of destruction. And I think where we're at right now is there are so many people like your Pete at the present moment. I've followed all the rules. I've lived my life by numbers. But those numbers are just, you know, discongobulated right now. I just don't know who I am, where I am or what I've done or where I'm, what I'm meant to do. But I know that I have to seek it, even though I have no idea what I'm seeking. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's but it, it is in that space, though, isn't it, that you that you begin to see? You know, yes. that's how your character meets Jade. It's in that space of, I know there's more, there has to be more. And when you are open to receive that, that's when things start to appear. Yes. I, I mean, there's an old saying, when the student's ready, the teacher yeah. appears. It, maybe it's that kind of thing with them. Mm. Um but I th- and you're right about AI. I, th- I think that AI does not belong in the creative arts. Yes. I mean, that, that should be a human endeavor. Yes. It can be useful in other situations. Mm-hmm. Um, what if somebody's missing in rubble in an earthquake? An AI might be the fastest way to find out where that person likely could be. That kind of thing. Well, even with the fires right now, they were talking on the news last night. By having using AI, they'll be able to detect fires before they get too big, or even which way the wind is going and how to attack it. And that is right now we're only being able to see from a certain level, not in depth. And so AI could be a, a, a new way of fighting fires, a new way of fighting catastrophes and everything else. Again, all of these technical things are given to us as a gift to use wisely. Mm. use properly right and that's sure. the thing that's where the human consciousness comes in you know back to your analogy of the one cop bought her home shouldn't have bought her home you know mm. he followed her conscious she's happier and wholer there this is where we need to take the time to assess our actions and understand what the impact is going to be yeah exactly and, and it's disaster if we don't and the planet is certainly heading for disaster Mm-hmm. We're already there. 
I mean, people don't realize we're already there. Floods. We're all going to to the party. <laughs> Floods and fires. Hell hath no fury. It's, it's happening right now. Um, but again, I think this is still part of that shakeup. It's like Pete and the character has a shakeup, right? To, to stand up, to change it up, to, to look for some, something different, something, you know, why am I here? You know, and I think that shakeup is shaking you up from the droidism. Just, you know, being the droid into, I'm actually a human being. And if I'm willing to go through the discomfort to find my comfort, right? You know, people want to do all things comfortably. You find change and you find yourself in discomfort, don't you? Yes. And I, and I think one thing Pete sees, and, and I certainly think Jade illustrates this, is once you embrace your creative self or, or living outside of the bounds, that can be a dangerous place too, because so many people are bound within. What do you, what do you want to say that, that those narrow strictures? Mm. I mean, my creative characters get, get rocks thrown at them. Their lives are in danger. They, and some of them embrace that and some of them turn on each other. Um, I mean, one thing the book explores is the role of envy and jealousy within the uh -huh. arts. Which yes, it and is it's, huge it's, folks. Yeah. And that's huge in the book too. And it's, in the present situation, at least, you know, then when the book takes place and, and now certainly are the rewards of channeling your creativity, being who you're meant to be and saying, I'm, I'm not going to play anymore with this awful, mm. awful world worth the price because the price is pretty steep. I don't want to give away the ending or anything like that. The price is pretty steep for the characters and it's pretty steep for E even minor characters that, that deal sort of on the creativity side. It's not all perfect because the other side is there. There is a war going on. Yes. And you, you can make yourself vulnerable to, to entropy. So uh, I hope the novel opens those questions. I'm mm. not going to claim it comes up with the final answer, but it certainly comes up with ways of, of seeing those issues. It's different you know, perspective, right? That reflects back, you know, that mirror back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I and hope, it's... and I hope you know, this is a perfect book for a book club. Um, you know, I'm always talking about podcast clubs. Listen to the podcast, and everybody talk because everybody's going to get something different from it, and that's where you can broaden the knowledge. But that's where this is a perfect book for a book club, where everybody then comes to speak of the, you know, how it affected them, what it sparked for them, and then you know, I think when we're willing to get into conversation, and you know, that gift of vulnerability of being vulnerable not i'm going to say what i think in the book that's going to appease what they thought in the book but being open and honest about what the book did for you i think it again gives permission to everyone else there's that yes i can be raw here i can really speak to it and i think that uh, a book club for that point of view it's not just always about the book and analyzing the book but looking at what the book did for you and really looking at it as a whole because in that book club is a mini society Right. And that then ripples out into everyone's life. Well, I've heard from readers that have said similar things that after they put the book down, they're still thinking about the characters. Yes. And they're not. And, and I and I love that because my point of, as I said, I, I wrote it in the 90s and I did more work on it more recently and put it out. My point of putting it out at all is to get people to engage with the questions and engage with that world. I I really agree with something i've heard you say on other podcasts that 
artists are channelers or art is a channel. It's a way of opening up to something else. And I felt very, what the word is, numinous Mm -hmm. as I was writing the book. And I want other people to experience that. And I I really feel like when I'm in the presence of of a powerful work of art, which happened last week, I was in the National Gallery and one of many, many examples, I'm just pulling one out, is at one point in the initial gallery, there's there's a painting on the ceiling and it's John of Patmos and, he, and he's looking at this light and the light is God and he's looking both entranced and terrified at the same time. And I just like looked up and stared at it for minutes because it drew me into some alternate yes. way of looking. Yeah. And all art does that. And I really feel that's the purpose. It's not, it's not ego. It's creating places where people can come and experience something different and hopefully it bring that into their own lives in one way or another or reject it if it's not for that look at one person can look at one painting I, 10 people could look at a painting and each one of them can see something different exactly and that's the beauty of it because what it's done is it's woken something up in them now if those 10 people can have a conversation Right. And, and and it then broadens that picture even to a deeper understanding. That is truly what art does. Yes, it's there to entertain, but it's there to illuminate and ignite that conversation. Exactly. And and not only could 10 people see something different, all 10 could still, while seeing something different, feel the same energy surge come yes. through them. It's almost like the 10 are collectively creating mm a thought painting in response to what they've seen yes great art enhances the viewer's creativity and makes them an artist too yeah yes it's all together it's it's all cooperative so yes i say i you know i don't care if you're an accountant your your art is the ability to see numbers right um i have i look at numbers and the gobbledygook you know um I remember having to do bookkeeping for a restaurant we owned and I hated every single minute of it partly I'm dyslectic and always put things in the wrong column but you know for me um for some people it's taking that and making order out of it and we do need a certain amount of order what we don't need is the disorder of somebody else's form of control over us yes right yes when you go to extreme of anything and you end up with order yeah. I mean, one of the apollonian dictums is moderation in all things and i think yes without making that a rigid law because it sounds like i'm trying to do that and i'm not but you go to the extreme you're missing so much of the other side yeah, yeah. you're going to spread out into chaos you're out of balance and your example of the accountant is brilliant because you know a, a creative brilliant accountant can see order where nobody else can exactly or see a way to account for reality in a way mm. nobody else can mm-hmm. Um, however, I am convinced there's probably very strict accounting rules that may prevent a creative accountant yes. from, you know, well, benefit- especially if they've uncovered something that shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, you know, whether you've got a chef or, you know, my, my son owns a restaurant, uh, his art is food, you know, putting a plate of food in someone and their stomach and their face smiling when they leave. You know, uh, that that's his appreciation. That's what he loves. Um, my other daughter's a mixologist. So it's creating a drink 
that people are going to drink and it and it sparks something inside them. She's won awards for that. My other daughter works with people with um, uh, brain injuries and through the art of play and, and other things, a kind of rebuilding that uh, wonderful tool of of ability. Um, and I think it's the, if we look at all of our, our gifts and understand each one of us are a gift. And, you know, I, I draw the analogy all the time with the orchestra. It is up to us to discover what instrument we are. And we can get to a point where we can play solo. But when we join an orchestra and we play, each one of us in our strengths, but harmoniously together, we mm-hmm. transcend that symphony out into something extraordinary. But the triangle may not get to play in every piece, but the piece it does play into, it's very significant. So it's not all about the leading violinist or pianist or anything else. It's about how we each bring our strength to that collective and work together harmoniously. And I think that is for me what the epitome of what I'd love to see humanity to do and I think we maybe we're doing it like toenail by toenail but you know just keep moving forward just keep moving forward and just to play with your your analogy it's it's the silence of certain instruments at certain times that yes for hour yes too. the absence of not hearing can be just yes. as powerful exactly yes you know the thing about a book is um when I read, I hate to be interrupted. I know some people do a chapter a night of this or that. I'm one of these people, I curl up, read a book, leave me alone. You know, I'm, my brother's an author as well. And uh, when I get hold of one of his books, it's, you know, over one or two days and perfectly recently out in the sunshine at my daughter's. Uh, they went off with the children and I'm there on the patio just reading the book, a good mug of coffee, perfect situation for me. So um, I like to dive right into it. And then for me, it's like having a damn good meal that you can still taste it long after, you know, days after you can still taste it. It's still very much alive in there. And, you know, there there are a lot of self-help books out there. But what I'm seeing a lot of nowadays with the authors I interview is I call it faction taking some factual events uh, and making it into fiction. And in many ways, people absorb that better than they do than just a fact book. Because in fact, sometimes they get too, um, too caught up in what's happened to the person, the facts. And when it's a factional book, it's the facts, but fictionalized, I feel that they can read it in a way where they can be a part of it more. Um, but each one has its role to play. But I think there are some people that learn better through the fictionalization of certain facts than just facts alone. Well, I think our brains are hardwired for stories. Yes. In, in reality, you know, just the strict facts don't necessarily follow a story arc. Yeah. So placing those facts within a story arc playing with them, making it a blend of, you know, fiction and fact. I, I can see where some people may prefer that. Yeah. And I think some of the best nonfiction writers do that. Yes. I mean, even science writers where you think, you know, there's, there's no story in how a paramecium evolved. Well, a really good science writer can write it in such a way it yes. feels like one and it's fascinating. So I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, when I was uh, kind of transitioning out of a very dark place of my life, um, I read an awful lot of mythical books and mm. and metaphysical and stuff like that. And they were actually most of them written for youth genre. 
But for me, they took me outside of my world and helped me reconnect with my inner world and, and just put me back on track. And had I read any of these other books at that time, it, it would have been too much like a, a sermon or a, a lesson I wasn't ready for. But by reading the other books, I could separate myself and put myself in a state of being that I was more ready to receive. So, you know, whatever book you're drawn to at the time, you go into a bookstore and you don't know what you want to read or what you're going to buy, go up and down those book aisles and a book will speak to you. <laughs> so it's allow it to come to you. That's so that's so interesting because I really hope the mythic aspects of the main it's God work the way myth works for you. Mm. And one thing that draws me to Hellenic mythology is so much of it occurs in art. It occurs in story form or statue form. I mean, this is where we have the myths or paintings on the side of a vase or something like that. Um, and I love that because I think there's a power in the fact that it's encapsulated in a work mm. of art. Yeah. It's, and that these stories have been somewhere for thousands of years, literally, many of them have been passed down. Or, I mean, And, you know, you're choosing rock and roll. And there will be some establishments that will think rock and roll isn't an art, right? But then you I look know. at, you no, know, no, no, a, a no. few of the people that have been around for the last 60 years rocking and rolling and still having stadiums filled. Hey, I'll prove it wrong. As a result of this book, I learned bass guitar and I was told by more than one person, bass guitar is not a real instrument because it's, you know, they use it in orchestras. It didn't exist before the, 30s or whatever <laughs> i get it yeah but but, yeah. But, but, but but the word bass right it's, you know we, we all need that kind of bass that's the heartbeat it's the heartbeat of the music that allows everything else to transcend it it's the support it's the yes. support yeah um but in the middle of the book and there's this there's this long I don't want to say speech, but there's this discourse that one of the characters goes into. She's a kind of a groupie figure, but she's a mainid. And, and in some sense, she may go back in various lives for centuries. In another sense, she's a 1990s groupie. Mm -hmm. And she's telling Pete that you don't know what rock and roll is. You just don't know. It started in the continent of Africa. And she goes through the beats there and how they were brought over on slave ship, became the blues, morphed mm -hmm. into doo-wop, you know, Chuck Berry, the 50s. She goes through the whole thing. And it's quite a long discourse. And I wrote it in a way that's somewhat mystical and magical to fit the tone of the, the book. But I also think there's truth to that. I mean, how can you say rock isn't real music? Yeah trance-inducing and yeah. i don't mean you don't i don't mean you need to be on drugs or anything to listen right. to it some people are i mean right but before i even played before i wrote this book you could just listen to it and get visions in your mind i mean it just sweeps you away how can this is what music does but i also think it shakes you up you know, it, it just shakes things up. And sometimes... It's Exactly. I mean, sometimes we're just so linear and blah, right? And then you need something that blah, 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 shakes you out, shakes the sillies out and just gets your whole body shaken up. And then it shakes away the crap and kind of reveals the way you feel. And and that's what we, we've been so scared to reveal how we really feel. 
because we've been told don't open that Pandora's box. I used to say that, um, you know, um, don't don't disrupt the boat. You know, don't don't uh, don't try and go down another lane. This lane's been chosen for you, and it's like, but I'm not a robot. I'm not on a conveyor belt. I'm a human being with a heart, soul, and spirit intelligence that knows how to direct my mind intelligence. I'm not a mind the other way around. And I think that's something that we're so disconnected from. And whether it is rock and roll music, whether it's, you know, symphony, I am very much a blues, the jazzy blues elongation, you know, oh, love it. Guilty pleasure into interviewing musicians. They already know who they are, why they are, what they're doing. They're already connected to their soul. It's, it's yeah. how that music transcends other people. And music has been proven in therapy to rebalance and uh, re-equilibrium people that are off, off kilter and bring them back down to a center. And yes. so music is so essential in our lives. And But now and again, we need that shake it up type music that gets the body going, gets the mind clear and to shake everything out and just feel free. Well, you know, where music started, I mean, you go way back. Beginning yeah. of time. Boom, boom, boom. Yes. But, but anthropologists that have studied Stone Age peoples are using music as he have used music as healing. Mm-hmm. Shamans use use rhythms that are the rhythms are similar to what evolved into blues eventually. Yes. yes. And when people were felt bad or something, they took that as, as a form of therapy. Yes. Yeah. It's healing. And I have always thought when I've had my worst times rock music was healing and this is before i learned learned to play and it's one of the reasons i think jade occurred to me as a character Mm -hmm. is a way to to heal pete in some ways yeah or at least open him up to some things right well he he looks like he was on a journey to shake up and open up anyway right so again you're again you're drawn to the teacher and you never know who the teacher is going to be Right. right. You know, it right. isn't that coach down the road. It's 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 that kid playing ball or, you know, back in the 90s, folks, they used to have boom box on their shoulders. That's right. <laughs> Not oh, earpods in there. Boxes. And they went up and down the street and you heard them. <laughs> right? and, now we don't know what people and, are bobbing and to. The <laughs> height of technology was a cassette tape recorder. Yes. yes. One character has to collect information for Pete at one point. So, yeah. The, the technology was very, by today's standards, clunky. But there, there was something warm about technology in the early 90s. And it almost, it's like the culture reached this end point of interacting with people in person. And then the World Wide Web happens in about six months after the book ends. And things start to change throughout the rest of the 90s. But... Mm-hmm. There's something warm about the clunkiness, pushing a button, having to yeah. physically take a pencil and unwind the capstan if the tape gets. <laughs> yes. You're more connected with your tools. You're also more careful because, you know, if you when you pulled that tape out of the thing, if it got caught, it could ruin everything. So you were more careful how you looked after your cassette tape or when it went to CDs, how you'd look after and your CDs. And there's CD. a scene where Pete knows that very well and takes advantage of that fact. <laughs> <laughs> but and again it's you know uh, for all the people that are uh, have these benefits today and take it for granted 
It's all the people that laid that path for you, whether they were the technicians or the, you know, the the innovators. Uh, it's all those people that have laid the path for you for where you are today. And I think sometimes it's good for us to pause, reflect where we are and turn around and just send back through the echoes of time a thank you. That's lovely. That, that is real. I think I'm going to do that tonight. It's. I mean, I mean, you think about everything that you have and yeah. where it came from, and you trace it back. There's probably millions of people that are involved in the fact that you and I are sitting here talking through this by screen. Zoom right now on a computer, right? right. Yeah, we take it for granted, including those 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 shamans and the Neolithic cultures going yes. back forever. Yeah. It's yes. it's an unbroken chain, and we need to appreciate that more. And but also. If we had stifled the creativity of the people that create all these online things, the, you know, the computer, the Zooms, and the, the everything else that we we take for granted, your phones that now, you know, you can wear as a watch, and it's no longer a city block, right? And look at all that it can do. Um, you know, if we, if we reverse back and look at, it took somebody who was creative. You know, there's two what-ifs, I call it. There's what-if... It all goes wrong. And then there's, what if it works? And it's those creatives that go, let's just try it. Now, that didn't work. Let's try this. That didn't work. That did. They didn't go, oh, what if? They went, what if? What if? What if? I keep doing something different. And then, hallelujah. Look, it works. And I can't we apply that to our own lives? <laughs> and putting value on the journey to get to what works. I see. I never call that failure. For me, failure is when you give up and you will not do it anymore. I just call them redirects. Redirects. Okay. Redirects. I call it, I call it journey. You're right. A journey. Journey of life redirects. That didn't work. Try this one. That didn't work. Try this one. Right. Redirect. Redirect. Just try another angle. Try another journey's, path. Sometimes the journey is better than the goal. It's Well, it is, that's what the goal is, is to explore your journey. When okay, I look, I, I've just, I've just written my, you know, uh, um, memoir, I call it my reflections on life. And I look back on my life and then certain other things come into memory as you're doing it, right? And it's like, um, I look at where I am now, almost 69, been doing this 11 and a half years. Am I exactly where I thought I would be in life, in my own personal life? No, I'm not. But then I look back and all the things that I was willing to try, Right. This this didn't work. That didn't work. Yep. I licked my wounds, got up and went somewhere else, tried something else. Right. And that's the thing is that the, the get up and get going. Right. Just try something else. And I think when we stop even and look back at our own lives and we look at, gosh, yes, I did that. Ooh, I did that. And when I did that, this happened. And if we look at that instead of looking at I'm not, you know, where I want to be. I've still got time, hopefully. I'm not passing, you're not leaving tomorrow, hopefully. Uh, it is where we are now and what we're doing now and what impact is it having that counts, right? And mm -hmm. if you gave up on yourself, and you know, I was one of those people that lived far too much by that dictation of trying to be what everybody wanted me to be and completely lost myself. Like a Pete, he followed all the rules and the regulations. Until he no, didn't. No, didn't. <laughs> Until he didn't. Oh. <laughs> and where did, you know, and then realizing you cannot. Oh, what tree are you? If you were a tree, what tree would you be? A maple. 
why? They're strong. I'm a willow tree. You're a willow tree, okay. I'm deep rooted now. I've got a good solid trunk, but my branches can go with that wind any which way it needs to go and they're not going to break. Okay, that's cool. But I had to become that willow tree. I had to come from the seeding and grow in that. And so all of my experiences of life had led me to that strength of that trunk and those roots. And they'll allow all my branches and I can grow more branches. That's the beauty of life, all the branches that we can grow. And it doesn't matter what kind of wind comes along. I can go with that flow. Right? And I think... And willow trees are graceful. They're like an embodiment of grace. Yeah. Yeah, I just like the fact that it's so flexible. And I am in many ways. In other ways, I'm not. Because the other ways, I've gone true to myself, which is the journey of Pete. You know, how do you be true to yourself? Who is yourself? You know, where are you meant to go? I mean, the big question is being true to yourself. Who are you? Not your identity of your job, your sex, where you were from, but who are you at the very core of you? And that's the journey that we all need to take. I'm sure with all the books that you've written, the discovery of yourself, because you're writing this, you're channeling this, this is all coming from you. So this is all little aspects of you and your observations of life and, and a little of you in there that you must have discovered so much about yourself through all of these writings. Um, they changed me in the writing. They certainly did. And they brought me into directions I wasn't aware I'd ever go in. And, yeah. and what you described and what I think I alluded to earlier, when I when I started writing Mated, I didn't play music. <laughs> I wrote I wrote Mated because I kept getting this image in my mind of this man in my house playing a four-stringed instrument. And I didn't even know what it was. And having to do research for the book, I'll just try to make this this short. Um, I learned it was a bass and I wanted to learn the character. So I, I learned bass and I didn't plan that that would lead to starting band and recording CDs and writing music on my own. So it did it did lead me in different yeah. ways, just like my research in canon making that that I did at the end of my doctoral program. Yeah. I didn't anticipate I'd be writing fantasy trilogy. Right. And yet after after that, and I was home and it was hoping I would get an academic job. At the time, I didn't have one that eventually happened. Um, I got an image in my mind of these two men. And one, one guy was holding the other guy at sword point. And I could see what they looked like. And the guy being held at sword point was telling a story. And the only thing I knew was the man holding the sword was once a friend and was now an enemy. And the man at Sword Point was compelled to tell him his life story. And out of that uh, came this fantasy trilogy called Enemy Glory. I mean, I didn't expect these things would happen, but you allowed, you, you followed allowed. and allowed. Your That's heart the key. Needs to be open to creativity. Yes. True. You didn't and dictate then, what they should be. You followed who they were. You allowed them exactly. to come through you. Yes. Exactly. Allowed them to come through me. Or they yeah. push their way, whether I liked it or not. But the point is, <laughs> they come through you. And that's, that is really, really when we're talking about art and an artist, it doesn't matter what you do, but that's the true art. When you allow things to come through you, it reveals to you what it is you need to do. And because you allow these characters to take on their own personality and show you who they were, 
that they then transcended into this other story. But had you dictated it, uh, where, you know, some people you've got to have all your chapters laid out, all your characters laid out, everything done before you start writing. And it may work with some people, certainly not with me. I'm one of these people that's got to be revealed as I go. But it's allowing those characters to evolve. And people say, but you're writing. Aren't you putting the words in the mouth? Aren't you doing this and that? And it, there's, there's like somebody behind you, isn't there? That's that's just kind of your other, I'm not going to say alter ego. I would just say, you know, your other side of self. Yes. That is telling you what to do. Yes. So it's using your intellect and knowing how to do it. But it's taking that storytelling of the universal you of, exactly. of what to do. So it's using your knowingness uh, and your intellect together. And that's where the creativity comes from. When the knowingness and the intellect come together and create a dance, then it creates a strength. Sarah, you put that beautifully. It reminds me of the romantic poet. And I forget which one who said that they they think with their feelings and feel with their thoughts. And that's it's the kind of... <laughs> I don't think if I think I'm into trouble, I feel the thoughts. <laughs> you don't want me thinking. <laughs> but, I have tried to I have tried to do it the way you, you describe in terms of, you know, sit down, plan it out. Here's what's going to happen. Every time I've tried to write something that way, I've been really unhappy with it. It's, yes. it's the kind of thing I don't even want to take out of my drawer. It's not yeah. going to see like No, because what you're doing is you, you're, you're forcing something. You're, to... you're forcing something. You're dictating the way it should be, and you're not allowing the creativity to flow through you. You know, yeah. my brother is an author. He's written many, many books, and he has he writes by hand first, and he allows the characters to come out, and then he may, I want to take the characters here and there. But when he's busy writing, he lets the hand do the writing. And then as a literary uh, teacher, master's level, you know, he then obviously uses his expertise to put things together. But he, when he writes, he's a different person. Yes. Totally different person. Absolutely. He, you read his books and you meet him. And I would say the truth of who he is is in the books. <laughs> and the other side is what we call a moo cat because he's all going, no. <laughs> it's um, like that. Yeah. It's, it's like that. Yeah. And and I think that's the beauty of it, you know, um, when you can look back at maybe something you've written or something you did and go, oh, my God, you know, I, did, I don't know how I did that. I'm pretty proud of that. Well, the, the, why you did that or how you did that is because you allowed your beautiful self to come through and you weren't dictating how it should be. And we live in a world of dictation. Oh, yeah. And so when you can take that dictation, put it over there and say, sorry, you're not a part of this creativity, right? I'm going to allow, but the brain already knows the structure of where things need to go. So the brain will take what allows comes through and put it down in a format that makes sense. I couldn't have said it better. That's absolutely what writing is like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... I can't spell to save my life. And um, and funny enough, actually, the, the person that actually is a, has edited my book and um, certainly gone through it is my son-in-law, who's an engineer. And so I'm the last person I thought that would go through my book. My brother has as well. But it is, um, it's really quite interesting because it's what he's seen with it. And then he said, you know, you've got some things missing. I'm going to just ask you questions and then I'll take what you've dialogued and send it to you in transcript. 
And I found, yes, because I'm personally, if you ask me questions, then I'm in that space and it comes out. When you have to think about it sometimes and try and recall it on your own, it doesn't always come through. So I'm sure with you, even talking to other people, sometimes it can open up the door to that character and go, ah, I can take them here. I can take them there. Or they can have this experience because the people you meet while you're writing, they all have an important role, don't they? Of nudge, wink, push, pull. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm just thinking, I, I don't know if it was Robert Frost that said this. He might have, but if there's no tears in the writer, there's no tears in the reader. Mm. I would paraphrase that to say, if there's no surprise in the writer, yes. surprise in the reader, let your characters surprise you. Yes. You might not have anticipated that they're going to do something, but let them do it. Yeah. Just write that way until you can't write that way anymore. Right. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and also, it? you know, don't write that this is the final draft. It's get everything down and then the, the intellectual side of you will then format it in a way that is readable. Um, but don't worry about what goes down, what comes out. What comes out is what needs to come out. You know, taking that beautiful creative chaos and, and ordering it to a point, not losing the chaos because that chaos is a part of the story. And, but just putting it in a format that's easier for other people to read is important. Sure. It's controlling the chaos and not letting the chaos usurp you or take you over. I think I'm a, probably a person, I mean, I would love to be orderly. If you look at my office, you know I'm not. Uh, I live in chaos, I think. Um, but I can see the order in chaos, where some people see chaos and it's just chaotic. And, you know, they they need that outside order there. But it's like, think that is like, if you are writing, then put down the chaos and you employ someone who has the order. You don't have to do it yourself if that's not you. Of course, it is you because this is what you trained for. Um, and you've now written five books. So is this character going to have another book? Is there going to be... A book two on this character? Well, I do have a book two that's in an early stage mm -hmm. that I'm playing around with. And I have a couple other books at the same time I'm playing around with. And I'm not I'm not really sure which one is catching fire yet. I'm just right. leaving myself open. Right. Um, it's, it's like you've put all the kind of the, you know, in like a dress designer, I've put all the designs and the fabric out there and then I'm going to see which one speaks to me first. <laughs> or speaks to me at all. Um, yeah. I think Pete deserves another book. Mm -hmm. I think in my impressions, people tend to like him mm -hmm. and I think they want to know what he's going to do next. Well, especially if you took it like later in the technology world. Right. Yeah. Yeah, sure. He would be quite a bit older if I pushed it forward, but that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, in the early 90s, he's in his early 30s. So right. if it were set today, he'd be 60. 60. 60. Yep. He could the 60s is the new become, 50s, folks. <laughs> well, he could have reverted to become a really cynical <laughs> guy. I don't know. I don't know. Um what I'm playing around with is more 90-ish right now. But yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there's always kind of an area, isn't it? Like, I mean, I, you know, I'm a 70s chick. That's when my youth years were. And so, you know, and it was a wonderful time. And I lived in South Africa at the time. So, and I also traveled a great deal. And I had some wonderful impromptu moments in my life that I'll never forget. They were just so perfectly aligned and the energies were so shared. It was just wonderful. And I think that's, you know, why when we reach a certain age and we look back, it's not just that, oh, we're remembering our youth. It's just remembering beautiful experiences that we had that we just want to um, to illuminate, to elevate to another level. It's true. It's true. So tell us a little bit about the other books so we've got a little understanding of them. What were, what are they about? Well, Enemy Glory is a trilogy. Um, I think some people for some reason think it's a, a series and like book one book two book three but it's it's one story in three books mm-hmm. like like the lord of the rings or something and it's told by a young magician magic user cleric his name is llewellyn and llewellyn is from an area of the world that suffers from famine suffers from oppressive government and he, he somehow gets mixed up in this legal issue in which they're going to use him as a sacrifice and and a woman that he went to school with gets him out it helps him escape and he ends up in a nearby country that's much more comfortable people have enough to eat there's there's plenty but it still has some troubles and he makes friends with the leader of the company the leader of the country the leader's family and he just loves this place. It's called Thrill. And he wants to live in Thrill the rest of his life. He loves the people there. He's in an area of Thrill that speak his language. They accept him. He's a brother in arms. He's going to do everything for these guys. Uh-huh. And there's a magician there, an older wizard who's teaching him magic, which is he always wanted to learn magic. So it's this perfect setup. He risks his life for them. And after risking his life and everything, they betray him. And they leave him to rot in a monastery. And at that point, he decides, screw this, I'm going to follow evil. And it's an evil monastery, so they're happy to teach him the ways of evil clerisy. And as an evil cleric and he grows, he's going to get revenge on these people. And that's what the trilogy is framed as. Now, he's telling his story, but he's telling his story to the man that betrayed him was holding the sword to his chest. So it moves in and out of this frame where Llewellyn is telling Walworth, you know, you did this to me and this is what happened, my Lord. And this is why I did this. And then we move back to what happened, the story itself. So it's, from present to past. We we yeah. don't see a lot of that in, in stories where, you know, you see characters in movies and books and things, they turn, they turn bad. And it's generally because somebody has done them wrong. The, right. it, it, it generally comes from some stem of abandonment, right? Yes, yes. But how often do we get that, uh, allow that person to tell the story of why they went down that path? Because most of the time in, in any uh, show or anything, they're killed. They're now evil. They were once good, they're now evil. That's it, they're dead. Instead of understanding why. And, it, and I think that is, again, a good metaphor for life is that why have people made wrong choices? Why are they angry? Why are they bitter? Why are they hateful? And if rewind their clock as to where were, where were they not listened to? Where were they abandoned? Where were they hurt? And why has nobody been there to help them heal? 
and this this form of negativity or evil that they go from is a form of protection because they just don't want to feel that pain anymore of that betrayal and abandonment well that's what enemy glory is about i mean choice and its individual choice and its consequences and it's an added twist the enemy is passing judgment on them this is a this is in the form of a trial mm. so the enemy that betrayed him is going to judge whether he should be executed for treason and I think at times, and I know this from, from readers, and this was my intent, you do feel sorry for Llewellyn. Mm. You are rooting for him. And other times, you want to kick him. Yeah. <laughs> Run I threw him. <laughs> exactly. And the trial takes up the first two books, Enemy Glory, Hecate's Glory. And the third book is after this trial. It's called The King's Glory. That's, that was out a few years ago. And it's more of an epilogue, although it is a third book of a trilogy. And that explores creativity and storytelling and how we create ourselves through the act of storytelling. Yes. And there's a character in there who's a bard. Her name is Erin. And Erin creates herself through acts of storytelling too. And it doesn't believe in herself as a bard because nobody else does it first. Right. So at one point, uh, a local king does or gives her a charter in play and says, you're a bard now. Then she believes in herself and can work all kinds of bardic magic. But I was sort of playing with the idea of who gets to call themselves an artist and who doesn't. Right. And, yeah. And we have a lot of problems with that in society. We really we do. do. We do. And I was hoping Erin is maybe my answer to that. She's unknown. She spends most of her life in hidden corners, can barely get a gig. She tells stories for free on the streets. And yet, by some standards, that would mean she's not a bard. However, people listen also, to her. So therefore, <laughs> well, people do sometimes, mm. but her whole life is this. Yeah. This is what she does and survives at. But that's, that is her gift. That is her instrument. So, that is her instrument. Yeah. But no, she's not a famous bard at a king's court or anything like that. And so... Again, back to the triangle, to yeah. the soloist, just as yeah. important, right? Yeah. Just in a different platform. I mean... And if, and if she hadn't been there with her stories, Llewellyn would not be where he is. She's his impact. Mm. It's just you've never heard of her before. So right. it, it plays with that in, in The King's Glory. And I think The King's Glory finally ends a trilogy where everybody needs to be, where all the characters need to be. So I'm kind of happy with that book. So Kind of, kind of reminds me of the world of podcasting. You know, you've got the podcasters that have so many million followers because they're famous, right? And they get famous people on and people follow the fame. And you've got the, the Wayne Dryers, you've got the Deepak Chakras, you've got the Oprahs, et cetera. For me, I interview the people that are doing the same work, but just haven't found the fame with it because they're concentrating on the work. And it's like, um, it, are my podcasts important to the masses? I don't gain, go for the masses. For me, it's about the people that want to hear the story, that want it to open them up, that want to be able to, at the end of it, go, you know, food for thought, a reflection, or hadn't seen it that way, or I could do it this way, 
or, you know, like, this has sparked something inside of me. And I think that is what a real artist is. It doesn't matter what you do. It's the impact you have on other people. A baker is an artist when you eat a piece of bread or a bun that delights you, right? Mm. It's it's an artist. Look at them. What is our contribution? Because we all have to pay rent here on this planet. We all are contributing our gift. And whom does it serve? And just because it may only serve a few and not the big masses doesn't make it any less worthy. Exactly. I think what you say is true. And I would add to that. It's also your relationship to your work as well. Yeah. I mean, if you view your work as an instrument of reaching out to people and connecting and serving people, right? Like, like yes. you pointed out, that's different than if it's a work of ego. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. And there's, I think it's complicated, but our culture tends to like to simplify things into black and white. Yeah. Black and white again. Yes. So. But at the same time, when somebody reaches that pinnacle pedestal that other people put them on, God forbid in the public eye that they should make a mistake or have some flaw or something happen. because or do the, something different than they did before. Exactly. They would just be torn right back down again. Right? Yeah. So there is something to be said of the triangulist or the bard singing in the street, making people happy as they walk by or listening to the stories that um, the trickle effect. You know, I'm, I'm not about ivory towers height. I'm about arms around the world and lo locking arms with each other around the world. Because for me, that I feel is a stronger thing. And I think it's, uh, again, it doesn't matter how small someone is. Let's, let's face it, a mosquito is small. <laughs> it can be very, very irritating and have a huge impact on us, right? So, again, you know, it's not the big, the big snake or the big uh, black widow spider or anything else. It's, uh, it's anything can bug us. I mean, anything like the ladybug can delight us, right? Right. I think creativity is a form of spirituality. Yes, and absolutely. You practice your spirituality at whatever social level you're at, and it doesn't make you any any lesser. No, that's that absolutely. allowing. That's that knowingness of that right. other person behind you knowing and just bringing it through you. You stepped out of ego. You stepped out of dictation and allowed that knowingness to come through. That is that spirit. That is that universal wisdom, divine, whatever anybody wants to label it. And it comes through you and it's in trust and it's in, in, in love of what yeah. comes before you because it can't come out of you that creatively if you weren't in trust of what was being given to you. Exactly, exactly. And by that definition, I think and as, I, as we began the interview, I think everybody has that channel to creativity. Yeah. And that we're all we're all artists and that most of us are kind of separated from it and told we're not or whatever. And and it's everybody, the accountant you mentioned, yeah. everybody. Don't listen to any of them. Right? The only voice you need to listen to is the one inside. This is the one that is your compass. It's your moral compass. It's your compass to where you need to go. It is that igniter of your heart, soul, and spirit. Let that be the driver, not the outside chatter, because let's face it, the world is very confused. It's very disruptive. It's very 
cruel. As an empath, sometimes I have a really hard time being amongst humans when I see how cruel they are to each other. Mm. But then I do shows like this and I see absolutely how illuminating, wonderful and gifted and inspirational that we could be to each other. And that's what keeps me going. And why can't we be like this all the time? Yes, we have trials and troubles. But just like your other character who chose the evil because he was in pain, right? Yes, we need to understand the pain and why he went down the evil. But at the same time, he made that choice. And that is the choice that all of, all of us at some point in our lives are faced with. Are we going to go down the blame, the hate, and it's everybody else's fault? Or are we going to take onus and responsibility for our own choices, our own actions, and choose to feed the energy to move forward? That mm. redirect, right? And that that is that, I think, where we're at right now. I think that particular trilogy is very apropos to the fact where people are right now. Well, I'm just going to be evil. Well, let's catch them at that stage where they feel abandoned and help them to feel worthy, to feel valued, to understand their instrument and help them move forward. Because evil will always grasp hold of and promise you everything. We don't promise you anything because you've got to work for it. You have to work through this beautiful process of discovering your spirit and becoming that beautiful gift you are. And that isn't hard work if you allow. And if you step into it in trust, and then you step into the gift that you are, and you simply are. What you do is simply is. And what goes out is for whom needs it. And it's so peaceful and it's so calm, as opposed to the other way, which is always in turmoil. So lessons to be learned from your books, right? Lessons to be learned. Talking points to discuss. I yes. They have all the answers. But no, people are so busy chasing answers, they're not asking the right questions. It's asking the right questions, even pausing to reflect on the question to discover what the answer is. Everybody's looking for an answer. No, the answer is in the question. What question are you answer, asking? Right? So it's being present to actually understand. Now, having said that, how do people get hold of all your wonderful books? Also, how do they find you if they wish to reach out to you? Well, all of my books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Kobo and Apple and a lot of other places. And how they can find more information is my website. I'm at karenmichelson.com. I have a page of books. You just click on a book image and it'll show you everywhere you can buy it. Um, book description, reviews, free samples to read. I have a mailing list. If you join my mailing list, you'll get a free copy of the first book of the Anime Glory Trilogy. It'll be downloaded right away. So cost you nothing. Um, like I said, that's at karenmichelson.com. And Michelson and is just as it sounds, folks. M-I-C-H-A-L-S-O-N. So Karen Michelson. Dot com. And my latest book, The Main It's God, is there's a lot of information about that up there too. So. Right. And of course, you're on Facebook, Google, yes. Instagram, yeah. LinkedIn, 
I have a contact page with links to all my social media. Right. I'm most active on LinkedIn, but I am on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. I'm sorry, X. And- <laughs> what are we meant to call it nowadays? I don't know. You know it sounds weird to say I'm on X. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a page about my band on my website too. So Great. Uh, the music that we've released is based on the Enemy Glory trilogy. A lot of it are pro- progressive rock concept albums the old fashioned rock albums that tell the story from beginning to end. And they all came out of the fantasy trilogy. So you can find out there's, there's one that's based on myth cycles of Apollo and Dionysus. And so literature and myth play a huge role in our stuff too. And of course they can find those, you know, Amazon, iTunes, Spotify as well. All um, the usual places. There's yeah. links on my website where you can find them. And that's uh, Arula Records, A-R-U-L-A. Yes. And Arula is a a city from the Enemy Glory trilogy. It's a place where the elves in ancient times kept their treasures of art until they removed them from the world. Okay. Which do you love best? Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter. Lord of the Rings. I love them both because Lord of the Rings takes you, I think, more on that metaphorical journey of discovery where, you know, but I love the way Harry Potter introduced an alternative world to thy youth which i love so lord of the rings is an alternative world too i know but it's perhaps a bit too sophisticated for young kids where harry potter is that wonderful introduction then they graduate to lord of the rings (laughs) so and um, i mean lord of the rings and the hobbits and all of those i'm an absolute fan on of all of those i love anything like that because i love you know again we think that um we're the only world in the world, in the universe, and there's many universes. We think we're the only intelligent species. That's questionable. Um, and, you know, wonderful thing about all these things, it just shows us other dimensional worlds, uh, other layers, other than the layer that we've been brought up on. And I think that's where the magic is in all those other beautiful dimensional layers. And that's where the excitement is, which... Um, I love definitely (laughs) thank you so much for sharing here with us today I love your journey I love the way you've taken it and uh, you know the fact that you didn't land that academic job straight away it was meant to be because probably set you on the path of this writing and looking at life in a different way Um, and who knew that you you know going to be in a band because of this as well right so (laughs) it's exciting when you again allow your life to reveal where it's meant to be through the you know through your own writings through your own your own creative source so um bravo so that's great so folks please reach out to her her site cara karen michelson.com go and look at all that she has up here the books um read a sample all the archives interviews the band and all the contact where you can buy all the books it's all there all right and uh you start stepping into another world you know sometimes it's not just escapism it's revealism mm, i love that i love that revealism i think i'll steal that one yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much for being here with us today. And folks, please don't forget, you know, I'm a huge podcast party fan. Everybody listen to a podcast in your own time. Come together like you would with a book club and share what you got out of it. 
and let the conversation continue. Of course, read the book because we want you to talk about the book or books as well. But it's all about sharing. When we share how we feel or what something has done, you know, how it sparked this or sparked that, you know, inspiration begets invitation. And the more we're willing to share and converse about it, the more that ripple effect goes out. We are the answer, folks. So let's step into it. Thank you so much, Karen. And until next time, Thanks, folks. Sarah, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. My pleasure. Absolutely. Until next time, folks. Bye for now. We hope that you enjoyed the show. There are so many more for you here on selfdiscoverywisdom.com. Just go to the podcast tag at the top there and you will see all the many genres and all 3,000 shows ready for your listening. We are here to serve you, to help you on your journey of life. And we know that through inspiration, it begets invitation. We are supported by you, the listeners, and those that we interview. Anything that you can spare us in donation would be greatly accepted. And we do hope that you enjoy the next show.